What is happening, everyone? Welcome again to The Window, Canada Sports Betting Podcast. The March Madness Preview Podcast presented by CoolBet continues. Ahead on today's episode of The Window, Tournament Tilt-A-Whirl. How one game I didn't bet leads to a lesson on how to handle the ceiling and floors of college basketball teams. I'll look back at a successful Saturday and using our pregame handicapping to get a win with Oral Roberts, a live bet winner with Baylor, and not get dragged into the Syracuse undertow. Then it's a review of Sunday's debacle and a little let's do that hockey, why it might be best to just trust the model, unless when it comes to the Dallas Stars. It's time to head to the window. Let's go. Welcome to the window. I'm your host Matt Russell, and it's the uh, it's the tilt edition of of the window on this Monday. And it's incredible what one day can do to you when it comes to sports betting and like sort of confidence level and just excitement level for games and all of that sort of thing. Right, the tournament going pretty well uh, up until yesterday, where the wheels absolutely come off and again there's only four games only had bets technically on two of those games but when you're going through and you're watching these and you just can't believe what you're watching it's it's important to be able to sort of flush that sort of thing out and you know what I want to sort of talk about here to start here is the importance of you know and again earmuffs out there kids just bitch sessions about these games and these teams etc etc and you know, I think, you know, say what you want about Barstool and whatnot, but like Barstool Big Cat and his uh, talking about the kids. They're just kids. They're just kids. And just reminding yourself that they're just kids and, you know, lay off and don't, you know, don't overthink it. Don't, you know, don't beat them up about it. Um, they're just kids. They're just kids. Uh, but the importance of these sessions where you just go, you know, somebody out there, you know, has to be watching this. Like somebody out there. You know, I need to share this with, and it isn't just me personally who needs to share it. It's sort of, it's you as well. And so, you know, whether or not you bet the same stuff that I do, you pick the same games that I do, et cetera, et cetera, you know, it's nice to have somewhere to go to talk about it. And whether that's just like a chat group with you and your buddies going like, can you believe that foul call? Or why can't these kids hit shots? Or something along those lines. I think we all sort of reach out to, you know, people we trust and, you know, whether again, we, we even know them or, or whether just sort of media personalities. I think that's in part why Twitter is so successful from a sporting standpoint, right? We want to, we want a community. Uh, we want to share, you know, how we're feeling about these games and what we're seeing. And then a lot of times, you know, of course, because it's the lowest common denominator in society, it turns into like people arguing and all that kind of thing. Right. But like fundamentally, if it's working at its finest, we want to be able to sort of share, like, how did this go so wrong? In the same way that we like to share when it goes right. But, you know, that's the type of thing that just human beings, we tend not to focus on the positive, we tend to focus on the negative. And so when we're looking to share, you know, we're looking to share more about the negative. We're looking to commiserate more than we are to celebrate. Now, in the case of yesterday's games, you know, fundamentally, you have to understand college basketball, these kids, right? I always com- you know, compare sports or whatever to you know my golf game, your golf game. It doesn't matter how good or bad you are at golf. The reason you play golf is because you hit a f- couple of really good shots. And it's all relative to 
you know, how good you necessarily are. I'm not particularly good, so the two or three good shots that I hit, the one long putt that I make, the decent bunker shot, etc., etc., is what keeps me coming back. But I know going out there, you know, I trust, you know, my driver. It's my favorite club in the bag. It's the thing that I think I can rely on most. But there are some days where you go to the tee and you just can't hit your driver. You might think you're a pretty good putter. That's the thing that you sort of, you know, bread and butter. And then some days you're just blowing balls seven feet past the hole every single time, no matter where you are on the green, right? You just don't know what's going to show up the very next day. That's what I would say athletics is about, but especially collegiate athletics, where you just go, I don't know what we're going to get out of these kids. And when it comes to betting and the point spread, you know, fundamentally the point spread is made the market bets into it it sort of decides what the appropriate number should be then game to decide whether that was right or wrong and it's up to those teams expectation or worse than expectation and if both teams play at exactly expectation the you know the game is going to land probably pretty close to a point spread Right. And then you get into the luck zone of, you know, did we get this free throw? Did we get this late game situation? Did they dribble it out on, you know, seven on a seven and a half? Or do they dribble it out on eight on an eight on a seven and a half? You know, that's the sort of luck element that we talk about a lot with these end game things. But, you know, when we're talking about a point spread and a game that's close to a point spread, you know, it isn't just made up. You know, sometimes I think it's made up. Sometimes it feels like it's made up. But it's, you know, the market is able to make these adjustments. So, like, take any game that's coming up this week. You know, you might think, oh, like, that number's way off, that number's way off. Well, if it's truly way off, the market is going to exploit that. The number is going to move based on what the market thinks that the number should be. So that by the time the game gets played, especially these games that have, you know, four or five days to sort of think about and to, and to have the market evaluate the game and... You know, the bets come in and the money's you know, the money moves the numbers and all of that sort of thing. And then it's just a matter of like, okay, who's got whose driver is working this, you know, on Saturday? Whose putter is working? Whose wedge game is dialed in? You know, it's not that they're good or they're bad, it's that they're playing good or bad. And in some cases, you know, external forces get involved, injuries, uh, refereeing, you know, all of these sorts of things happen. So you know, I want to start off talking about the game here that I technically didn't have one red cent on yesterday. And that's obviously the most interesting game really outside of, I guess, Oral Roberts and Arkansas on Saturday. You know, the best and closest game of the weekend. And that's Alabama and UCLA. And so, you know, in this space last week, I talked about the Illinois, you know, Illinois getting knocked out of the tournament in the second round. And... You know, that being 75 to 1, the best bet that I'm ever going to make. Because, you know, they go into the tournament there, plus 400, plus 500, something along those lines. And if you're getting a 75 to 1 when the tournament starts, they're 4 to 1. That's a really, really good bet. Well, Alabama's right there with it. 115 to 1 from last summer. And then we get through the first weekend of the tournament, and then they get down to, you know, 6, 7, 8 to 1. And the reason that they're even just that high is because of how good the left side of the bracket is, right? How many really good teams were left from that and the path that Alabama was going to have to go on. But if you're getting 115 to 1 bet for 8 to 1 here, 
or vice versa, I suppose, an 8-1 to one bet for 115-1 to one back in the summertime, that's as good a bet as you're ever going to make, right? And it's not just something that you're going to be able to do, oh, wait, wait till next year. And that's the difference between, between being a sports better and being a fan of a team. Because when your team's really good and they make, you know, the Stanley Cup finals or the NBA finals or the semifinals or the AFC championship game, something along those lines, and they lose, you can always go, well, at least there's next year. We were good enough to get here this year. We probably are going to be good enough to do it next year, you know, whether they do it or they don't. And obviously there's extenuating circumstances at times, you know, players leave, retire, etc. But you go, okay, like we're good. We're going to be good again next year. Let's, you know, get back to the bottom of the mountain and start climbing again. Problem is, it's not like we're going to be able to get, for example, Illinois or Alabama at the same price that we got them in the summertime. And depending on who leaves for the NBA and who graduates and all that sort of thing, we might not want either of those teams. So then we've got to find another team or two other teams in this summer that are at that same price, that are going to find themselves in that same position. And so the work isn't just, okay, let's just leave it up to this team to continue to be good, right? Let's not just leave it up to the Kansas City Chiefs to sort of, you know, keep building around Patrick Mahomes, obviously adjusting for his contract, et cetera, et cetera, and just hope that they end up, you know, making the Super Bowl again if you're a Kansas City Chiefs fan. We have to do the work on our own, right? We have to find those teams that are going to create that astronomical level of value because it's not like there were a bunch of teams that were sitting there at around 100 to 1 at the start of the season that, you know, we can just pick and choose from and like, okay, that's going to work out. Now, there turned out to be Oregon State still alive, UCLA still alive, but you had to sort of find those and pick those out. And the craziest thing is, is those two teams were both available at like 200 to one just a few weeks ago, which is again, just sort of tells you how insane this whole tournament has been. And so when I talk about Alabama, I think like, okay, well, you know what? you know, Illinois lost to Loyola, right? Like they got beat by Loyola of Chicago. And it's a little bit easier to take when you're sitting there watching the game and going like, oh, Loyola is just a much better team on this day. And I think the on this day thing is important, especially when we're talking about both handling losses and betting games beforehand. The understanding that, you know, again, any given day, it isn't just an NFL thing. It's an every sport thing. And so, you know, Illinois just was not very good. Loyola was very good. The incredibly annoying thing after the fact is Loyola's very next game, they're not very good at all. And Illinois would have killed that version of Loyola. And Illinois would have killed that version of Oregon State. And so the frustration is, is like, why did Loyola have to play that well in that game? And if you have sort of the reason for that, and you can, and you think that there's some sort of tried and true formula as to why Loyola was really good in that game and not against Oregon State, I'm happy to hear it, right? And, you know, matchups, we always sort of talk about that and game planning and all of those sorts of things. But like, at the end of the day, the ball has to get shot into the basket. And that brings us to Alabama here. Because they didn't get beat right? UCLA wasn't the discernibly better team. They, you know, Alabama beat themselves. We had officiating issues. We had just flat out luck and we had just some insane statistical variance and all of that. But Alabama beat themselves. We wouldn't have been remotely surprised if they had gone 11 from 25 from the three point line. That would have been about average 44% for a team that shoots, you know, above 40% from three. That would have been 
about right. Especially against a UCLA team that we talked about this on Friday, not particularly great at defending the three-pointer. And we talked about how, okay, well, they're going to you know, shoot 30 three-pointers. They're probably going to hit you know, 11 of them and you know, blah, 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 blah. But that 11 of 25 number wasn't the three-point shooting number. That was the free-throw shooting number for Alabama, which I'm sure you have heard by now. And of course, it's even worse than that because front ends of one and ones get missed and now you don't even get an opportunity to shoot a second. And so, even you know, maybe they probably would have missed that too. But we're talking about 44% from the free throw line for a team that doesn't shoot like free throws poorly. USC, one of the worst free throw shooting teams in the country, you know, obviously not an issue for them as they just continue to blow people out. But 11 out of 25, like, there's just no excuse for that, right? That's not UCLA, you know, putting together some incredible defensive plan so that Alabama was going to shoot 11 out of 25. They can't make up for that from the three-point line. You know, as mentioned, we'd hoped they would go 11 for 25. We hoped they would go 11 from 30, you know, for 30, for 32, for 33. They go 7 of 28. Again, why is that? Is that just UCLA with some incredible three-point defense? That would be certainly uncharacteristic for them. Then you get all the other stuff that went down, right? You're getting UCLA with double pump duck-in three-pointer line drives that somehow end up in the basket. Like, that was insane. You get the officiating, right? And the charge 40 seconds into the game that gives Herb Jones two fouls. Like... Tiger Campbell slides in after Herb Jones had gathered. But what do we know about the officials, right? We talked about it last week. We talked about it all the time. They live for calling charges anytime they possibly can. Uh, we're watching, you know, Jones getting raked over the arm late in that game as well. No call there. Now, again, sarcastically, we would say if he went to the free throw line, he probably missed them. But Herb Jones is a 73-74% free throw shooter. He's not even a bad free throw shooter at his core. We've got the shorts review, right? Like, we're at a point here in sports where we have to slow things down frame by frame to find out if a ball that was clearly kicked out of bounds by one team, if it grazes a guy's shorts, we're going to say that it went off of that player? Like, that is just so sad that we are there in sports where we are defining it that tightly. Any moron can see that on their screen and go, you know what, that was directed out of bounds by the kid on UCLA. And yeah, it hit a kid's shorts, and I'm not even super sure that that was, you know, that it actually did hit his shorts, or what, because we don't know, like, the fabric moving, it's slow motion, people are moving around, whatever, but even if it did hit his shorts, who cares? Let's just try to use a little common sense in our lives here when we're talking about this whole review process. I mean, I realize it's in the rule book, et cetera, et cetera. Should it be? No. Should we even bother with these stupid reviews? And by the way, like the one loser referee who like oh, said we had to review this given, you know, one guy was all over it and the other guy's like, well, it might have deflected off him. Like, can we just go with the fact that it clearly kicked off of the UCLA player and women? Now, that didn't end up mattering technically, right? Because, you know, they missed the subsequent shot and Alabama got this, you know, uh, next play. But... You know, going back to the offensive foul, Herb Jones completely camped out and Tiger Campbell runs directly into him, right? It's the exact same two combatants, if you will, from the first half. And they just decide, nope, that's good. 
you know, play on, and the ball finds its way into the basket, and UCLA takes a lead, and then again, you know, you'll say, and you're completely right, right, well, Herb Jones needs to make free throws down on the other end, because he subsequently gets fouled, right, should have been on the line the play before that, but he gets fouled this time, he goes to the line, he misses both, then UCLA makes both on their other end, and then we get the dramatic three-point shot that forces overtime, but from a you know, basketball standpoint, we go, okay, well, like, what made Herb Jones all of a sudden be an atrocious free throw shooter? Two of eight, I think, on his night, something along those lines. A guy who's 75%, who at the very, you know, average should be six of eight in those eight free throws. Well, how about the fact that he was placed in a position where he was, where he had two fouls? in the first half of the game, where he had to sit. Basketball, like many sports, if you've ever played them, very much a rhythm game. And so when he's taken out of that rhythm, you know, it didn't look right the rest of the way. So whether he was getting fouled or not on layups uh, that he would miss, or, you know, just not right when it comes to free throw shooting, which is obviously a psychological thing, primarily, this has been documented, you know, forever. Um, you know, the fact that he wasn't in that game. Now, you could go and say, you know what? Like, UCLA being up 11 points at halftime. You know, I doubt they'd be up 11 points if Herb Jones had, you know, had played more than just a couple of minutes. They were able to squeeze some some game time out of him later on in the first half. But never being able to be in the realm of the game. The defensive player of the year in the SEC, arguably the player of the year in the SEC, is just out of rhythm, out of the game. And so now all of a sudden that guy is in charge of making the most important plays and making the free throws late in the game. So like these things matter that happen early on in the game. And so just being irresponsible with regards to, you know, charge calls like that and just saddling people with fouls when, you know, the point guard, you know, okay, he gets elbowed in the first in the first one. Smart play, I suppose, to have, you know, the point guard in post defense against Herb Jones because his head is at the level you know, that the that Herb Jones's elbows would be. If it was a guy who was a foot taller, that's a, you know, a gentle elbow into the shoulder, and that's never called. Maybe that was part of the plan for UCLA, in which case Mick Cronin is a genius. Um, and then somehow Tiger Campbell, good enough to slide over at the last second and draw a charge, knowing that officials love nothing more than to make a charge call. But all of these things pile up. And, you know, I tweeted about it yesterday where it's like, I'm starting to feel like if you can find out who's going to win a basketball game in the first five minutes just by watching layups on whether they fall in or fall out. Because, again, any given day, and sometimes it's just not your day, and it's up to you to sort of battle back and make that happen. And so it was very much UCLA's day as they're making, as I mentioned, like the pump, you know, three-pointer line drive that somehow goes in when the guy, all the guy was trying to do was draw a foul and the defense was so good it was able to avoid, you know, getting a foul called on them. But he makes the shot anyway. You know, you saw even in the overtime, UCLA making like step back, fade away type three pointers, whereas Alabama's just not able to make anything. Now, of course, Alabama could have gone ahead and won the game in overtime. Nobody's arguing that. They absolutely kicked it away. And it's funny how those late game shots, and of course this is the second time that this has happened to me personally with Virginia Tech, the first game of the tournament, you know, making a crazy three-pointer to tie the game force overtime. Again, all we need is a win. And of course, you know, the initial instinct is to think, oh man, how can the team who was victimized by that shot, how could they ever like peel themselves off the ground and come back and win, right? But we see it all the time. 
late goals in hockey, right? Somebody scores to tie it with 15 seconds left. You just assume that the other team's going to win. And it just doesn't work out that way. And it doesn't necessarily work out that that team that was victimized in the first place is automatically going to win either. The truth is, it doesn't matter. And so I think it's important to sort of remember that when you're live betting or if you're thinking about live betting, whether it's hockey, especially come the playoffs here, um, or basketball, don't get caught up in that emotional, like, concept, right? Like, the idea that they're never going to be able to come, you know, get back up and win this game. Because it just doesn't work out like that. It's There's no psychological effect whatsoever. It's crazy. You'd think there would be. There just never is. So UCLA goes ahead and they win in overtime. And the future goes away. And, you know, again... That's the thing that really bums you out because you go like, when, when is it ever going to be that good, right? When are you ever going to get 115 to 1 as a 7.6.5 point favorite in a Sweet 16 game, right? Just never going to happen again. So really, really irritating, but that's what we do here, right? We have to talk about this stuff after the fact because it's cathartic and we have to clear our minds when we're making bets going forward because that's just the best way to do it, right? We have to do it with a clear mind as best we can. And if we can't do that, then it's best to take the day off. And, you know, I don't know that I'm necessarily there on the taking the day off thing. I'm usually pretty good at just sort of giving these things an hour. This one's probably taking going to take me another, you know, probably a 12-hour type deal, maybe an 18-hour type deal, maybe a little bit longer than that, uh, but a really annoying one. And that sort of gets piled up on the Florida State and the Creighton games from earlier on. And when we talk about point spreads being the sort of, you know, standard bearer for two teams playing to their average, then at some point somebody's going to have to shoot above average, some team's going to shoot below average, and obviously part of that is game planning and coaching and who's ready to play and all of those sorts of things, right? But you look and you start with Creighton, they're getting 13 points, the number's down from 14, actually went down to 12 and a half right before the game starts, and one guy on the team shows up, right? Marcus Sigurowski shows up, he's outstanding, and you go, okay, like, he's going to keep them in this, they're going to get opportunities here, they're going to get open shots, and all they do is miss open shots, one after another, after another, after another. They bring guys in off the bench who can't make a layup in a game that's, what, four or five-point game late in the first half, and then that quickly gets stretched to 10, and just like that, it's over. Now, what are they going to do, not play those guys? No, but like, you know, it's sort of like hockey. We talk about high-danger chances and say, okay, create the high-danger chances, and then it's up to you to put it in the net. Well, create the layup. Create the open three-pointer. And if you can't do that, then yeah, you deserve to not cover a really big spread. You deserve to lose the game. But if you can get those, you just have to hit them. And whether or not you hit them at your average rate, you know, 38%, 37%, whatever it ends up being, you know, that's a that's the any given day element to all of this. And so Creighton doesn't hit anything other than Zagorowski. And then he, of course, you know, he's exhausted by the end of it because he's the only one who can do anything. And they end up losing by 18. Florida State comes in. And, you know, we talk about, you know, what was the handicap for that game? Well, we know that Florida State turns the ball over, and that's going to be a problem, except for Michigan is 320th in the entire country in forcing turnovers. Well, did that seem to matter on Sunday? No, because Florida State was still managing to turn the ball over to Michigan. 
Offensively, Michigan had a good game plan, a lot of high-low stuff, taking advantage of knowing that Florida State was going to front the post. Why is Florida State fronting the post when they have two seven-foot guys and a ton of other length? I don't know. That's one you're going to have to ask Leonard Hamilton, but like, why go out of your way to change not necessarily what you do from a defensive strategy, but what like anybody would do in a defensive strategy. Uh, and then that cost them some buckets. And then of course, right, one of the best shooting teams in the country, top 20 in three point percentage, who is dying for a reversion, having not been able to score, having not been able to shoot threes for their first two games. And they still can't shoot threes. So if you're going to shoot less than 20% for an entire tournament, yeah, you're probably going to get knocked out. But when we're looking at predictive metrics and stuff like that, and we're trying to handicap a game before it happens, you do have to look at it and go, okay, like, they've, they're good at shooting, right? Like, we've had an entire season of them putting up pretty good shooting numbers. Why wouldn't we think that, it, you know, there's going to be at least uh, a progression to the mean, if you will? And I'm not saying they have to shoot above their average to get back to their original average. I'm just looking for them to shoot average and see where the cards fall. And so Florida State's not able to do anything well. They're fouling a ton, which again, isn't necessarily out of character from a Florida State standpoint. But, you know, again... Just seeing, you know, if we could get any team here on this Sunday to play just to their average, we'd have a lot better chance, right? If Creighton could just play to their average, everybody other than Zagorowski, Creighton probably covers that game. Alabama wins that game. Maybe they don't cover, but nobody ever said we expected them to cover if they just shoot to their average. Oregon and USC, really disappointing from a basketball standpoint, right? We were looking, that was the popcorn game, didn't really have a bet on that, had, you know, we have two separate futures that, of course, now, you know, we're hoping the USC future moves on um, and wins against against Gonzaga. Obviously, we'll talk about that more at length tomorrow. But you just go, okay, like, that was really kind of a bummer. Thought we would get better a better effort out of Oregon. You know, we're hoping for plus three and we would actually bet Oregon in that situation. Uh, but USC, right? Like looks, looks the part right now, looks the part right now. And so disappointing game from a entertainment standpoint, but the whole weekend was disappointing from that standpoint with obviously the exception being Alabama and UCLA, a game that when it was, you know, a 10 point lead for Alabama, I guess it was an eight point lead in the first half. Um, you know, I would have been completely content with that being a 20-point Alabama victory. That was incredibly boring. But of course, the law of averages means that one game had to be entertaining. It was the one that I didn't want to be entertaining at all. Going back to Saturday, sort of, you know, pulling the old rewind here. Um, Oregon State, you know, obviously that number, which we talked about on Friday, an overreaction for Loyola, the number was too high. Oregon State goes and wins the game outright, so any number cashes there. And, of course, the annoying thing, right, is that Loyola played that much worse than they did against Illinois, and, you know, as if they had won the, the title by beating Illinois, right? And that's how a lot of people reacted, talking about them as a dark horse contender to win the tournament, just because they had pulled off that upset. And But that just sort of goes to show, right? They played at their absolute peak against Illinois. And that was probably as bad as they could play against Oregon State. And so I think this tournament, by and large, has been a real showcase in just how high and how low each of these teams can play. We look at Colorado, right? It can't get any better than that against Georgetown. And it can't get any worse for Colorado than it did against Florida State. 
And so, you know, a lot of these teams, you know, obviously Loyola being one of the better examples, but a lot of these teams, if it's too good to be true in one game, it's probably going to go south. Oregon is a good example of that, but you can't know that going into the game because you could make that same case for USC because they trucked Kansas. And so you could easily go in and go, okay, well, we look too good for USC against Kansas. You know, as long as teams keep advancing, there's going to be a lot of situations here where it just always looks too good for both teams. And then you just have to rely on some good old-fashioned handicapping when you're trying to figure out these games, which brings us to Oral Roberts and uh, Arkansas. Obviously, you know, an incredible finish, um, a game that I struggled with trying to figure out who I wanted to even win that game with all of the different elements that were going on, plus 11 and a half was an easy winner for us in that one. Um, you know, obviously we'd lost the Loyola Futures that we had put in for plus 160. They're right there, so you know we get that back with you know Oral Roberts. Um, we're able to hop in on Baylor Live. That was played to a T as far as knowing that one way or another we were going to get a good op opportunity here to either bet on Villanova if Baylor takes a huge lead or to bet on Baylor if Villanova takes an early lead, knowing that it was going to be very difficult for Villanova to sustain that. Now, did they deserve to not cover that game? No, probably not. And so you get, you know, the people patting themselves on the back who told you that Baylor was going to truck uh, Villanova all week and that they loved minus seven and a half or minus eight or whatever. And it doesn't become that until the final whistle blows and you go, okay, well, Baylor actually won the bet. And so, you know, those people get to take that victory laugh, lap, laugh as well, uh, even though they were wrong, <laughs> right? Even though they were wrong, Baylor did not absolutely destroy Villanova. Um, uh, and then Syracuse and Houston. And from a handicapping standpoint, right, like that's, you know, what can we rely on here and how can we try to predict who is going to have their A game, right, the, the ceiling game, who is going to have the floor game. And we were able to see that Syracuse is going to be in big trouble against Houston because what Houston does doesn't fit with what Syracuse usually takes advantage of. So we could feel like Syracuse's floor game was coming. And, you know, they already committed to a 40 to 1, you know, small bet on Syracuse to win the region. So it was more just, let's hope I'm wrong about this. But it was really more just advice, don't bet Syracuse at all week. People talking, the plus 6.5, plus 6.5, plus 6.5. So many points with Syracuse, so many points with Syracuse. But you could see early on, very first possession, offensive rebound, three-pointer, offensive rebound, three-pointer. And even though Houston missed the shots that they took, you could see that they were comfortable taking them and that they were going to get way more opportunities than Syracuse was going to get for that game. So all in all, we end up going 2-3 and because, you know, 2-1 and one on Saturday with Oral Baylor, um, Winning at two and yeah two and one on Saturday I should say, uh, and obviously Loyola Chicago losing that game, and then of course zero and two in the first two games on Sunday, and so two and three. But you know the Bama and Oregon futures now you know one of the two Oregon or USC we're going to have to lose. That's just how it works. But the Alabama futures are sort of just the thing on the shoulders where it doesn't feel like it was just two and three or even just two and four if you factor in the unit lost there. It was really more an opportunity cost or an opportunity lost in not getting there even to the very next round with Alabama against Michigan, which I think would have been a really, really interesting game because I think Alabama does a lot of stuff that would be really difficult for Michigan. And now Michigan, all of a sudden, right, the, the road gets paved for them. Now, instead of being a couple of point favorite 
at or near Pickham. Now they're a seven and a half point favorite, along with everybody else, essentially, um, in these Elite Eight games. Uh, as for those Elite Eight games, we're going to take a quick break, uh, and then we're going to talk about Monday night's action here with a couple of games, and then we'll do a little Let's Do That Hockey, too, on the other side. Quick interruption to remind you that CoolBet.com is the presenting sponsor for the Windows March Madness coverage. There's still time to sign up and double your deposit up to $200 of free money to bet with. If you're looking to try single game sports betting for the first time or you're looking to add to your sportsbook repertoire, CoolBet.com is offering to double your deposit up to $200. There's a link in the description of this podcast. Otherwise, simply go to CoolBet.com, create your account, and enter the promo code WINDOW to double your deposit. Terms and conditions apply. Now, back to the betting talk. All right, not going to take too much time here, because frankly there's just two games tonight, and it's pretty simple. I'm going to take the points in both games. At this point in this tournament, listen, I understand, you know, Baylor's covered, um, basically in the same zone here from a point spread standpoint, right? Seven, seven and a half, that kind of thing. Uh, give me Arkansas plus the seven and a half in this one. I think Arkansas has the athletes to match up with Baylor. I think, you know, defensively, Arkansas can, listen, you're never going to shut down Baylor, but like the game plan is going to be, let's not let them shoot a billion three-pointers on us and let's not turn the ball over a ton. And I think, you know, from a ceiling floor type situation, I certainly don't think we saw Arkansas's ceiling in that game against Oral Roberts. And I don't think we've seen it yet at all so far in the tournament. So I think they're actually, you know, sort of ready to have a really good game. Now, does that mean they can win this game necessarily outright? I mean, it's certainly possible. Obviously, you need these, the floor type of a game for Baylor, which isn't, again, you know, out of the realm of possibility either. Um, but again, fundamentally in this tournament, I just don't know how you lay points. Now, again, Baylor may win. They may win comfortably. I certainly think a lot of people think that they're going to win comfortably. I just don't know how you go into these games unless you have a very specific handicap where both the, you know, defense of, for example, Baylor, you know, you know for sure that they're going to shut down Arkansas. And you also know that there's an offensive mismatch in there somewhere as well, in the same way that we talked about it with Houston and Syracuse, right? Like it needs to be, it needs to work logically, in, you know, in a handicap both ways for me to want to take a favorite at this point in this tournament because this isn't you know teams that we don't know that much about in the first round or even the second round or when it comes to UCLA right somehow making it into the sweet 16 despite being 11 points down at halftime you know to Michigan State or in the second half you know we know what Arkansas is capable of a very good team that had you know an elaborate winning streak throughout the course of the season this is a team that is good enough to play with Baylor. Whether they do or whether they don't, you know, that's you know that's the that's the issue. That's the question that we're having to deal with here. Um, as for Oregon State and Houston, uh, the reason to like Houston in this game is because they just dealt with Syracuse's zone, and Oregon State's going to throw a very similar sort of thing at them. Um, Oregon State's probably going to have a tough time scoring against Houston, but I think Houston's going to have as tough a time scoring against Oregon State. And so now we're looking back in the same, you know, in the same vein here as the Oregon State Loyola game. Now the problem with the Oregon State Loyola Chicago game was 
as much as Oil is a really good program, really good team, you know, a really good operation over there as far as sort of knowing what they're doing on the court, and obviously they were able to win relatively comfortably against a team that was more talented than, than them in, you know, in Illinois. But when laying that many points with Loyola, you do realize that you are laying points with the team that's less talented. And so even though it's Oregon State and people don't think that much of that program, like they are still a Pac-12 team that has gathered, you know, as much, if not more talent than even Loyola Chicago at this point. And so it's one thing just sort of asking Loyola to win, which is what we did, and they couldn't do it. But it's another thing asking them to cover a big number like that. And so Oregon State is just chugging along here and is just never favored in any of these games. But they play a good brand of basketball. They play solid defensively. They know what they're doing. They have enough guys who are making shots. Now, again, could that dry up at any given moment? Could they have a, a floor game here after a couple of ceiling games? Absolutely. They absolutely could. But if you're going to give me eight points, right, I need to know definitively that Houston's going to be able to score against Oregon State. And I just don't know that that's necessarily going to be the case in the same way that they were able to crash the offensive glass against Syracuse. I don't know that they're going to have that same success against Oregon State. And so I think fewer possessions for both teams equals a lower scoring game. If you like the under, that's certainly a possibility there as well. We were on top of that when it came to the Michigan-Florida State game. Didn't bet it, of course. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, plus, I just give me the points in both of these games here because I think, um, I, you know, I, I think highly enough of the two underdogs here that I don't think what they've done this far has been a fluke, right? There hasn't been the quote-unquote easy path for Oregon State. There has been obviously an easier path for Arkansas, but they they've proven to me over the course of this season that they are, you know, a, a top 15 type of a team. So this isn't that same thing where you're looking at it going like, oh, okay, like fluky Oregon State who was never in the top 25 and now all of a sudden they're in the Elite Eight here, like this is crazy. A little bit different, but I think we get to the same places here. Now, does it probably end up in just winning one out of two here because one of these favorites has a lights out type of a game? Maybe that ends up being the case. Maybe that ends up being the case. But in this in this tournament, I just think you can't... I mean, you can go wrong, technically. But I think it's the right move to take the points if you can't find a discernible handicap um, that is glaring for the favorite to be able to cover this number. As they say in hockey, let's do that hockey. All right, this show's gone way longer than I anticipated to be, but let's do a little hockey. Thank you to Laszlo for that. A uh, little recap over the weekend. So Carolina over Tampa Bay on Saturday, nice little victory there. On the negative side, the Dallas Stars are just absolutely murdering people in cold blood out here and not in the good way. Dallas and Florida play back-to-back -back games. High danger chances, 7-5 to five for Dallas in the first, 9-8 to eight for Dallas in the second. So overall, they have 16. Florida has 13. Uh, 1.69 expected goals for Dallas in both at even strength. And 1.37 for Florida in the first, 1.3 in the second. So a very similarly played game in both instances. And I took, joked on Twitter and sort of, you know, talked about how, like, there's no way I'm going to remember this by the time Monday rolls around, and that's why we're 40 minutes into this podcast without, you know, talking about this yet. But the Dallas-Florida game on Saturday 
was just completely outrageous. First of all, one guy scores all three goals for Florida in a 3-3 game that goes to overtime. Uh, Florida scores in overtime defenseman Aaron Ekblad. He's mega offside, like doesn't even take them any time at all. What took them time was to clear them everybody off the ice so that they could actually review it, but the actual review time took no time at all to show that he was clearly offside. And of course the goal comes back, and now Dallas is getting all kinds of chances, and Sergei Bobrovsky's making an insane save to keep the game going, and then the puck goes down the ice, and Ekblad gets in alone, and this time he scores again, this time legally, and Florida wins that game. But overall, point is, is Dallas the much better team in both games? I shouldn't say much better, but Dallas the better team at even strength. Um, you're getting <laughs> penalty shot goals for Florida yesterday, power play goals, of course, um, and Dallas wins neither of the two games. And again, that's just Dallas in a nutshell, where you're sitting there and you know the rating goes up, and the rating goes up because even strength, they're outplaying the team. And so when I say to you, yeah, they're Owen, you know, they've lost three straight or they've lost five straights or, or, you know, seven of the last 10 and the rating's gone up. It's because of this. They play better at even strength. And that's what we want a team to do. And then they lose the game anyway. So the Dallas Stars just absolutely just taking scalps out there. Um, to one touch on a couple of games here as it was very much a central, you know, back to backy type weekend. Detroit. Um the uh model absolutely 100 100% was like Detroit's the right side here against Columbus, like you should be betting Detroit, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you know, what do we know, right? Like the number the, the model likes Detroit when Jonathan Bernier's in net. And, you know, we got burned, if you will, last week when he wasn't the starting goaltender. And that was announced, you know, an hour before the game that he had this injury. And now you're running out there with Thomas Grice, and he's atrocious, and he gets pulled in the first, like, 10 seconds. Um, obviously, I'm being facetious, but very quickly, he was pulled for Calvin Picard, and Picard's like, okay, I guess I'm playing, and then he gives up a goal, a couple of goals. But it makes you believe that Calvin Picard stinks. Now, Calvin Picard's on his, like, fourth team at this point, so, like, fundamentally, he's not good um but what do we talk about with any of these goaltenders right we talked at length about it last week with the ottawa senators on their fourth goaltender being like kind of doesn't matter right and there's no such thing as a good goaltender or a bad goaltender it's just whether or not they're 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 feeling it lately and so we're sort of judging picard on him coming in and giving up a couple of goals in relief but obviously it's a different situation than when the coach comes to you after the game and says you're in for the next couple of games and Sure enough, Detroit beats Columbus in both games. So the good news is the model works, right? Like it works. It tells you what to bet on and it gives you the right result. And, you know, from an expected goal standpoint. And then after that, it's up to, you know, the play on the ice and whether the puck bounces your way. But in this case, for Detroit, the puck bounces their way and the model is correct. But we weren't able to take advantage of that because I wasn't willing to trust Calvin Picard because, again, the assumption has to be that he's as bad as Thomas Grice, otherwise he would be already playing. Or, you know, if he was some young guy that we had never heard of, who hadn't played for, what, Colorado, I think he played for Toronto at a, at a point in time, who else? There's got to be somebody else in there. But, you know, the point is, is like, we know what that guy's capable of, and it's not particularly much, <laughs> right? Like... But that being said, like Columbus is so bad that apparently it doesn't necessarily matter and Detroit wins both those games. Um, very same sort of thing with regards to Nashville. 
the model had said Nashville is the team that should be favored here. We've talked about how the Blackhawks have been smoking mirrors, getting a lot of power play goals and a lot of overtime wins. That's stuff that's not sustainable. But the market believes that they're the better team than Nashville. That's not the case. The you know, Predators should have been favored. Instead, they were plus, you know, even money essentially, plus 105. They win both games. So again, a couple of opportunities missed there because, you know, again, the model is basing it off of, you know, what the expectation for Nashville um, is with regards to how they've played this season well when you're missing a bunch of guys and a bunch of guys are injured and all that sort of thing then you know that has to be taken into account but I guess fundamentally the point is is like maybe it doesn't right maybe the model is just going to be um right more often than not or at least more often um you know than the numbers or what the odds say that it should be uh correct but they get the sweep against Chicago. So again, good news for the model, bad news for actually making bets in these games. Now, speaking of actually making bets, that's a perfect segue because are we going to actually make bets on games tonight? Well, the model's looking for plus 140 for the Edmonton Oilers against the Leafs tonight. It was plus 135. I don't know if it ever got to 140 and people piled in at, at plus 140, but at plus 135, you know, people thought that was good enough. And they seem to have bet the Oilers here tonight and bet it down to plus 125. So from a market analysis standpoint and people liking Edmonton, is that reason enough for you to make a bet on Edmonton tonight? Maybe it is. It doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily a value play for the model unless it shot back up to plus 140, which it very well could by the time the game starts. Um, as for the other one, uh, we got Calgary and Winnipeg. And this one's just as much of a struggle, and you already know why, right? It's the Winnipeg metrics. And so, you know, this is their third game here, and it's a rubber match type of game, so it really couldn't be more 50-50 if you look at the metrics. You know, five on five, uh, high danger chances, 13 to 14. High danger conversions, one to one at even strength. Uh, expected goals at even strength. Calgary 3.07 to Winnipeg 2.87 in their first matchups. And, of course, we're getting essentially a pick'em game. You can get Calgary minus 105. You can get Winnipeg minus 105 in other places. You certainly have an option to bet whatever you want. And so, for me, I'm just sitting back and going like, do I really want to be involved in what is a true coin flip, especially given how things have gone really just in the last 24 hours, right? Like, I'd rather just watch the two basketball games, not pay any attention to hockey. Obviously, if it goes to 140 for the Oilers, I think we have to grab that. But when it comes to this Calgary and Winnipeg game, it's not like they've shown any improvement from a metric standpoint with the new coach, with Daryl Sutter behind the bench. And part of that is they just still don't convert their high danger chances. Talked about it last week in betting on Calgary on that Friday game. And it's funny, they lose that game and then they become even bigger favorites the very next day. I mean, part of that obviously was Hellebuck being out and Brasson being in, and he was atrocious giving up, you know, pretty much every single goal that he gave up was really bad. In some cases, just really, really bad. And so the numbers say, again, you're not surprised here, the numbers say to bet Calgary in this game, especially at minus 105. Do I want to mess around with that, especially against Hellebuck? I just think at this point, like, he's so good that, like, it can't be fully 
encapsulated. So a couple of interesting games just from a maybe sit back, relax, and watch, maybe not even watch the game, but just sort of see what happens from a metric evaluation standpoint to see where, you know, was the model right here? Was it not? How, do the, how does the uh, pricing move? All of that sort of thing. So uh, that's a wrap as far as the podcast today. Um, back tomorrow with the other two games. I am incredibly interested in the USC side of things with that game. Um, obviously, I talked about you know in my bracket show on the Friday of the tournament start that I thought USC had a real chance to beat Gonzaga. And you know maybe you're listening to that going like this guy's crazy, what a fiend, whatever. And maybe the game goes down and Gonzaga wins the, wins by twenty. But again, interesting to see what happens with that game. Less interesting to see what happens with the Michigan game, um, as I just wish it was Michigan-Alabama tomorrow in the same way that I just wish Illinois had won uh, against Loyola-Chicago. So again, two games where we had six-point favorites that all we needed them to do was win, but they couldn't even do that. So that's the tournament for you. Love it or hate it, but... Again, you just got to love it and hope one day that it loves you back. Don't forget to go to coolbet.com. Put in the promo code window when you make your first deposit there. Subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. Follow along at MRUSAuthentic. Until tomorrow, I'll see you at the window.